We're going to be in Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22 this morning. I'll give you a moment to get there. Again, if you're just getting in, we do have um, outlines and Bibles and pens uh, right over there on the, the, the welcome cart. And you're welcome to keep those uh, if you take one. Was the death of Jesus Christ a tragedy? I'm not asking if it was a sad thing or not. I'm asking if it was a tragedy. Those who see Jesus as a good teacher or a moral person would think so. They would say things like, he was killed unjustly. He was a victim of his own popularity. He got swept up in the system. And to be fair, he was killed unjustly. He was killed by a conspiracy between corrupt leaders and one of his own disciples. Today's passage shows us that, but it shows us something more. As we read today, we're going to see a Savior who, as he approaches death, not only is willing to walk towards it, but he actually orchestrates it, and he does it during the most important Jewish holiday in Jewish history, and that is the Passover. And it's because of these things happening that we learn something. We can know that Jesus' death and resurrection happened on purpose and happened for very good reason. And that reason was to bring in God's kingdom. And here's what that brought about. It brings about both the redemption of his people and it gives them a standard of greatness to follow. We get all that from today's text. And it's for that reason that I can say Jesus' death was not a tragedy. His was actually the death that would give the whole world life. Turn to Luke 22 and let's ask Jesus to help us as we look at a very familiar passage. Pray with me. Dear God, I thank you so much for your word. It is living and active. It interprets us. We don't interpret it. <laughs> and uh, Lord, would you help us to see with, with fresh eyes as we look at a passage that is so familiar, I worry that people might check out. And I ask that you would help us to stay alert and to keep our eyes fixed on you as we look at what you have to say about death and what it brings about. Amen. All right, I'm going to start with verses 1 through 13, and then I'll set the scene a little bit. This is Jesus in Jerusalem. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests 
and the scribes were seeking how to put him, that's Jesus, to death. For they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray Jesus to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room that I might eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepared there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. The first thing Luke shows us here is that Jesus sacrificed himself. Jesus sacrificed himself. So what's going on? I'm going to make a few small observations and then a larger observation to help us interpret this scene. First, one observation. There's a lot of conspiracy going on. Look at verse 2. The chief priests and the scribes, that's the religious leaders, they're seeking how to kill Jesus. They don't just want to do it, they're starting to make a plan. Why are they doing this? Well, they're doing this because Jesus has, from even the beginning of his ministry, back at the beginning of Luke, he has opposed them. He has opposed what they stood for, which is a great deal of corruption. And Jesus has also, now that he's here in Jerusalem, he spent a lot of time teaching and proclaiming judgment on Jerusalem. So he has very much threatened their way of life. But since they fear the people and their acceptance of Jesus, they want to kill him privately. And so more tension builds as a result of that, even in the spiritual realm. Luke points out in verse 3 that Satan enters into Judas, one of Jesus' disciples. So Jesus seeks out those conspiring religious leaders and he conspires with them to find a private location to kill Jesus. We've got quite the conspiracy set happening here. Even Satan seems to be in on it. So with all those little observations in place, Here's my larger observation that I think might help us interpret what's happening here. Immediately after all of this, Jesus orchestrates the advancement of the conspiracy. Look at verse 7. Jesus immediately asks his disciples to go prepare the Passover meal privately. 
In fact, while all we've heard about since Jesus' entry into Jerusalem were his very public teachings, those will all now be replaced by not only a private moment, but only private moments until Jesus' arrest and his trial and his crucifixion. It's like Jesus is holding the door open for the religious leaders and for Judas and for Satan. What does this mean? Why does Luke go out of his way to mention all of this? Because papyrus and ink were not cheap. It means that Jesus is in total control of this situation. That's what it means. In verse 10, let's keep going. Jesus knows about the man who would help the disciples prepare the private room where they would have the private meal. And in verse 11, he tells them exactly how to get the room. And in verse 12, he tells them what the room is going to look like. And in verse 13, it all goes according to plan. One more general observation that will help us understand what's happening. Jesus does all this in the midst of the Passover. Now, I'll explain a lot more about the Passover in the next point. But for now, let me just take a quick pause and explain a little bit. For Jewish people, the Passover meal, which first took place in the book of Exodus, in the Old Testament, centered around the killing of a lamb. God's people were spared from God's judgment because of the death of the lamb. And following this, following this meal, God delivered his people from their enemies. So the Passover feast after that then became an annual celebration looking back at God's deliverance, but also looking forward, anticipating God establishing his kingdom on earth. That's the Passover meal. And so how does that come together with what we just read here in Luke? It means this. Jesus' sacrifice was orchestrated very much on purpose at a very specific time. Now, true, Jesus' death, again, was surrounded by greed and surrounded by conspiracy, but he advanced the plot in the way a conductor would lead an orchestra. It was no tragedy. This is humble obedience to God in the advancement of a, of a plot that started a very long time ago. For now, I just want you to tuck that point in later when we talk about application. That just sets the stage. For now, let's move on and look exactly at what this sacrifice was designed to accomplish. Let's read verses 14 through 18. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. 
and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourself. For I now tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So here's the second thing that Luke is showing us here. And it's this. Jesus' sacrifice, which we just read about, would bring in God's kingdom. So what's happening here? This is the beginning of the Passover meal. Remember, this is to look back and to look forward at what God is doing. But at this particular meal, a few very strange things happen that tell us that something very unique is happening. First, look at verse 15. Jesus expresses a desire to eat with his disciples before he suffers. But then he says in verse 16, I won't eat until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, when he mentions the word suffering, you can take that to mean his death. But what's strange is that Jesus here is saying he will die, but also that he will eat when the kingdom of God comes. And then he puts an exclamation point on that by repeating that same statement for the, for the wine in verses 17 and 18. Here's the point. Jesus is using Passover language to say that his death will bring in the kingdom of God that the Jewish people had been waiting for, and then he will die, but yet he will be alive to eat in this kingdom. Do you get that? So what does this mean for the audience? It means that right here, Jesus is deliberately, on purpose, tying his death and resurrection to the fulfillment of what the Passover represents and the coming of God's kingdom. In other words, this annual Passover festival which Jesus has finally arrived in Jerusalem to take part in, it's actually all about him. That's what he's saying. Now, if you remember at the point of the Passover, Israel looks back to deliverance and forward to God's kingdom. So Jesus, God's appointed servant, has explained that his death will accomplish the latter. It's going to give you God's kingdom. I'll fulfill that part of the Passover, the looking forward part. And now, Jesus is about to explain that he's taking care of the deliverance too, the sacrificial lamb part. But he's doing it to a degree that a lamb can't. He's doing it on a much bigger scale. Let's continue on, tuck that in, and we'll read verses 19 through 23. As the Passover meal continues. Jesus took bread, in verse 19, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in, res in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, 
after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe, by that, woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them could be who is going to do all of this. So we've just talked about Jesus' sacrifice and that it happened on purpose to bring in God's kingdom. And now, the third thing Luke teaches us here is that this sacrifice and his coming kingdom gives us redemption. So what's happening here? Well, there's one huge thing that hasn't happened. Jesus takes the bread and the cup and he says something about a new covenant and then the meal appears to be over. But where's the lamb? Where's the feast? Where is it? Friends, look at verses 19 and 20. As Jesus hands them the bread and the wine, he says, one is his body and one is his blood. Friends, Jesus is talking very plainly about his death. His body broken. His blood poured out. And if you remember back when the disciples prepared everything, they prepared the meal. If you think about it, there's probably a lamb in the room in the corner getting cold. The Passover lamb is Jesus. That's the feast. And the connection to redemption is in verse 20. This Killing of the Passover lamb, me, Jesus, poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, just bear with me. We've done a lot of trekking through the Old Testament and a lot of heady stuff here. Just a little bit more. Let me briefly explain what he means by new covenant. And to do that, let me explain the old covenant. Back in Exodus 24, after the killing of the first Passover lamb, after Israel was delivered from Egypt, God made a covenant with his people, an agreement. You keep my laws and I'll be your God. And it was sealed with animal sacrifice. But even before Exodus was concluded, even while the Ten Commandments were barely made, to say nothing about the rest of the Old Testament, Israel repeatedly broke their covenant, worshiping other gods. And God sent prophet after prophet to warn them, stop doing that, turn from that. <clears throat> and all those prophets were rejected. 
But many years later, God delivered a message through one of those prophets named Jeremiah, who we read during the call to worship. And remember, in verses 31 through 34 of Jeremiah chapter 31, God said this, I will make a new covenant. And do you remember the difference between the two? In the new covenant, God would put his law into his people. He would write it on their hearts. It wouldn't simply be an external law for them to follow. In other words, they would change because of this new covenant on the inside. They would change from people who hated God and hated his law to people who would be redeemed, restored to God, and they could love him. And they could keep his law. Now let's fold that back here into Luke 22, 20, where Jesus says, the cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant. In other words, Jesus' sacrifice, which is happening very much on purpose at a very specific time in a very specific place, is the new promise. God's servant is paying for both halves of the covenant with his death. His death will make it possible for God's people to belong to God. To obey God. To have their hearts changed and inclined towards the things of God. And most of all, perhaps, as we have found in Luke, these people would be both a remnant of Israel, so some of God's original people, and people from all over the world. That's what's happening because of the killing of the real Passover lamb, Jesus. You got that? Now, in light of all that, what's the response of Jesus' disciples? They argue over who will betray Jesus. And then they argue some more about who will be best in this new kingdom. Because you know what? They don't get any of what I just said. They don't understand. And you can imagine Jesus, who's getting ready to die and leave this and teach his people the people who he's invested the last three years with are oblivious. In fact, they're running in the wrong direction. They look just like Israel. But this scene closes with a tender moment of teaching between Jesus and his very undeserving disciples. Let's finally read verses 24 through 30 as we begin to move towards application. A dispute also rose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercised lordship over them 
and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. Is it not the one who reclines at the table? In other words, am I not the greatest? But I am among you as the one who served. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as the Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So that kingdom, even in the midst of their failure, is going to the disciples. Here's the last thing Luke teaches us. It's that Jesus' humble sacrifice not only brings in Jesus' kingdom and redeems us, but it is our standard of greatness. So what's happened here after this Passover feast? What's happening is a misunderstanding by the disciples of Jesus what the behavior of kingdom citizens should look like. The disciples debate who's going to be the greatest. And Jesus' response in verse 25 tells them, do not take your cues from the culture around you. Don't take your cues about how to live from the culture around you as citizens of the new kingdom. He gives an example in verse 26. Those who actually have power should act as servants, not as, as he writes here, benefactors. Now, this is not a a cancellation of all authority structures, as some would argue. You know why? Jesus is still the teacher here. So sorry, a cancellation of authority. Here's what it is. It is a clarity of what authority is. It's even a clarity as to why it exists. And Jesus uses himself as an example in 27. Do you see me serving you? Do you see me ready to die for your good? You go do that. That's what life in my kingdom looks like. He's simply saying, do what I am about to do. Jesus is calling them to die. And again, yet, even as they die, he promises that they too will join the Passover feast with him one day. So in the same way they are to die, they will then live. So how does all of this, what we've taken in today, advance the main plot of the book of Luke? Well, we know that the hope of Israel, God's plan of salvation for the world, has arrived in Jesus. That's the main point of Luke. But here, 
we see exactly why Jesus is the hope of Israel. He's the fulfillment of the Passover and he's the fulfillment of the new covenant. He does both. He is the sacrificial lamb by his death and he is the future king by his resurrection. So what's the main point of this particular passage? Jesus sacrificed himself to bring in God's kingdom, which is our redemption and our standard of greatness. It's your outline. I like doing that. So, how do we apply this? Here's one application. It's only one, so it's going to be long. And this is for the Christian the people here who profess to claim the Lord. Here it is. Let Jesus' humility drive you to suffer so that others might live. Let Jesus' humility drive you to suffer that others might live. Now, without even barely finishing the sentence... I know right away from experience that most of you do this. You are quick to give. And you're quick to serve. And you're patient in teaching. Teaching your kids. Teaching the people that are under you. Even as they miss the point, like the disciples. And yet... You are bold for the sake of the gospel. But I know it's also very possible for some of you here to just look like you're doing that. So, to test yourself, I have a question for all of you Christians here. Underneath your knowledge, underneath your charisma, Underneath your hours of service logged, underneath even your power, if you're a leader here, are you humble? Are you humble? And I'm going to take a minute and clarify that word humble because it is an often misunderstood word and our culture, I believe, presently has it backwards. This is a quote from an author named G.K. Chesterton. G.K. Chesterton. Here's what he says. What we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth and this has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, what a man does is exert exactly the part he ought not to assert himself. And the part he doubts is exactly the part that he ought not to doubt the truth of Jesus. Do you know that this quote is 60 years old? 
And I think it's even more true now. And by the way, the audience of this quote, this book, is the church. So humility is this. God's people are meant to be doubtful of themselves. That is, quick to call out their own sins and failings. Quick to deny themselves. Ready to die. Willing to endure suffering for the truth and for the good of their neighbors. Not recklessly. For the good of their neighbors. But while they are doubtful about their own greatness, they are undoubtful, they are undoubting about God's greatness, about the truth. You see that? Grounded in God's word, behaving like Jesus here in Luke 22. That's humility. But the reverse can be the sad truth for the modern Western Christian. Here's what they can look like. They promote themselves. Man, they just can't stop talking about themselves. Either how good they are or sometimes how messed up they are. In the name of authenticity, they do this. And they're slow to listen. Quick to say, prompted by social media, What's on your mind? And out it comes. Quick to speak. Slow to listen. Slow to even consider inconvenience for the good of other people. And they are eventually quick to doubt their own sin. Of course I meant well. That person is wrong. And the worst part of all, as a result of being slow to doubt themselves, they are very quick to doubt the truth. And that sounds strong, and most of us probably wouldn't say we do that, but you know what it looks like sometimes? It looks like this phrase, I don't know. Hey, what does the Bible say about this hot topic? And you say, "Uh, I don't know. Because you don't want to get yelled at. You don't want people looking at you funny. Or you just don't like bantering, going back and forth. You're afraid of that. That could be so true for the modern Western Christian. And sadly, if you do it long enough, you will begin to call that humility. Right? Like, How dare we tell people that we have the truth? That's where it goes. So if you do that, or you see people do that, who claim the name of Christ, they have missed the point of what humility is. That's a tragedy. A Christian who claims the Jesus of Luke 22, but they're so busy talking about themselves, they resemble the disciples of Luke 22. That's a tragedy. Because that's exactly what the disciples have done here. And their lack of humility 
will lead them in the very next chapter to abandon Jesus to save themselves. Have you abandoned Jesus to save yourself? Friends, what do we do with this? Because we're all going to get this wrong. Our hope is what Jesus has done here in Luke 22. In other words, our hope for our lack of humility is Jesus' humility. Because what Jesus does here is speak the truth. He is willing to suffer to deny himself, to give life to the world. And he's so humble that he patiently teaches his disciples in their failure and then dies for them. That is not a tragedy. It's not a tragedy to live like that. It's not a tragedy to suffer for that truth. It's not a tragedy to do that for decades and then die and nobody remembers your name. That is no tragedy. That's humility. So, here are two questions, after all that, for you to consider as you ask the Lord to help you understand the answer to the question, am I humble? And again, this is for professing Christians. And I'm going to take my cues from uh, Mr. Chesterton. Question number one. Do you doubt yourself? By that, what I really mean to say is, do you deny yourself? A person doing this, so examine your life, or ask some, better yet, ask somebody to speak into this. Because we might give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. Ask your spouse, your roommate, your elder, trusted brother and sister in the Lord. A person doing this does not fill their days with insulating and entertaining themselves. They're not preoccupied with their own insulation. In fact, they discipline themselves to love what God loves. Hear what I said? This is the person who like gets up at six in the morning and says, man, I want some time with my Lord. And you're just, you're slogging, but you do it. That's what I'm talking about. That, that's success. That's humility. Denying yourself. That person studies their word. That person prays. That person even, from time to time, examines their own motives and asks for forgiveness rather than makes excuses. And that person is willing to suffer for what God's word said is true. They've simply denied the convenience, the pleasure the impulses of the flesh, and they've just started to incline themselves in the same way that Jesus is doing towards what God loves, which is humble service 
and death for the good of other people. So just ask yourself, am I doing those things? Question number two. Do you patiently stand on the truth of God's word? So a person who does this doesn't just know the Bible well. They patiently teach it to people. You're not just puffed up with knowledge. You're giving. And you know what? You're giving it to people that even when it just bounces off of them from time to time, you keep going in love. They're not irritated at the failures of the people that they're teaching. They're not only willing and glad to suffer for what God's word, God's word says is true, but they patiently endure it, even forgiving those who continually slander them and oppress them. They patiently stand on the truth. Now, if you're new to Christianity, or if your Christian upbringing was a little weird, and all this is pretty new to you, of course, the road to this life will not be clear. It's not easy for anybody. Jesus literally sweat drops of blood to do this. For example, consider just knowing your Bible. Consider that if you're new to Christianity. If you're new and you ask people questions or, or you invite them to accept the gospel and they're firing questions at you and you're not being fearful, you're literally like, well, I don't know the answer to that question. That's okay. If you're new, you're probably not going to have a lot of questions or a lot of correct answers. But in faith, what humble living looks like in this instance is instead of giving up, it says, what can I do? What can I do? So if somebody asks you a question and you don't know, you say, I don't know. But then you go digging for it. In fact, take them along. You don't just condemn yourself at your failure to know. You, in humility... Accept that, turn to God, look at his word. That's humility. It looks like a parent who patiently teaches their children. Even, and if you've ever done this, man, it's sanctifying. Even asking for forgiveness from your child when you sin against them. That's humility. That is no tragedy. This is the child who forgives his sibling after multiple daily sins. That's not a tragedy. That's not a busted family. That's humility. This is the student who shares the gospel on campus Patiently enduring rejection, not if, when it comes. That's not a tragedy. That's humility. This is the elder. This is the teacher. This is the deacon who faithfully serves without demanding praise. 
That's not a tragedy. That's humility. And this is the person who serves at the church that I forgot to mention, but doesn't go home and get mad about it. That's humility. <laughs> and uh, I ask your forgiveness if I forgot you. <laughs> In fact, that's why I love this place so much. Because there's so many of you doing this that I can't count you. And so friends, one last thing. If you failed at this, and I certainly have, let us look to the Lord who is faithful. Let us not whip ourselves. Let us not lower the bar. Let us humble not the truth. Let us humble ourselves. And then let that refresh us to go and work humbly. Reminding ourselves that Jesus humbly sacrificed himself at a very specific time in a very specific place to bring in God's kingdom, which is our redemption and our standard of greatness. And I can't think of a better passage to consider as we get ready to take communion. Can you? I want us to think about something a little different as we partake this morning. I want you to think about the humility of Jesus to gently teach his disciples as he prepared to die. And I want you to think about the book of Exodus and the fulfillment of the Passover. God's people are spared from God's judgment, not just once, but forever because of that. Because of the death of the Passover lamb. His body broken, his blood poured out for the new covenant. 